0: Welcome to First Fuel, a podcast bringing you perspectives on energy efficiency, electrification and decarbonisation from Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and this week I'm bringing you an interview recorded at the National Energy Efficiency Conference 2023, which took place at the UNSW Roundhouse on the land of the Bidigal people and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We're talking to... Dr. Jan Rosner, a global keynote at that very conference. Dr. Rosner hails from the Regulatory Assistance Project in the UK and is a real world-renowned expert on all things energy efficiency and electrification. This is a super fun chat. We get into uh, decarbonisation pathways in particular parts of the economy, why we're confident that electrification is the way forward when it comes to the building sector, the role that electrification could play relative to hydrogen in in other sectors of the economy. Um, Big uh, sidebar on energy efficiency targets and uh, the role that they play in a broad decarbonisation strategy and some of the KPIs that governments that are looking to refresh a national energy efficiency policy should be bearing in mind. I really enjoyed this chat. I hope you do too. It is my uh, great pleasure uh, to be sitting down here at the uh, National Energy Efficiency Conference 2023 with our, our global keynote speaker, Dr. Jan Rosenow from the Regulatory Assistance project uh, director of European programmes, a, a principal, a, a board member, um, but you know, massive efficiency and electrification geek. I think is the best way to describe you, Jan. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, and that's. I think that that just about covers it very well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So we've, we've had the pleasure of Yarns company, um, for a short time, but a, a really productive time here in Australia. So I think you arrived, uh, on Saturday morning, uh, in Sydney. And, uh, since then, you've spent some time with our head of market transformation, Rob Murray Leach, uh, but also spent a day in Victoria and then the last two days here in Sydney, providing a keynote address at the National Efficiency Scheme Summit yesterday and, and, uh, Put you to work today again, providing another keynote address at the National Energy Efficiency Conference. And I guess I always like to have these chats towards the end of your time because you're flying out tonight. And so you've had the benefit, um, of, you know, talking to a bunch of super smart people from, from industry and from government and from the not for profit sector. And I'm always interested in the reflections of our international speakers. You've effectively been marinating <laughs> in the Australian energy landscape. And this is your first time to Australia.
1: It is the first time to Australia and it started with, Quite a few hours of hiking in the Blue Mountains, (laughs) where Rob Murray Leach has briefed me on what's going on in Australia in quite some detail. Uh, Of course, we only talked about energy, energy efficiency, Mm. whilst we were walking, (laughs) as as we would, as we're energy geeks. No, what what are my reflections on um, having been here? Um, It's, I mean, it's a fascinating debate. It's, it's similar, but also quite distinct from what we discuss in Europe. I mean, solar is one of the things that kind of stands out, right? This massive rise in solar in Australia. I think Australia now being number one in the world when it comes to solar per person installed, uh, and generation, I assume, too, because of the massive solar gain you have in Australia and the huge benefits that provides, but also the challenges, especially in areas where you have so much solar that you can't even absorb it during certain hours of the day. And that reminded me a lot about California's problem with the duck curve, yep. you know, the famous duck yep. curve, where the belly of the duck keeps getting bigger and the problem keeps getting bigger. More difficult to solve, so that that was one of the things standing out how to resolve this issue of you know, lots of solar, but then you have you know the evening peak um, when there 's maybe air con uh, on a spring day still need air con, but there 's not enough sun um, so that 's kind of interesting observation, just seeing that you, that was coming up in all of the meetings you know the issue of solar. I think the second theme that I um, observed coming up is the poor quality of the housing stock in Australia yeah like often no insulation uh, wooden construction you know timber frame and uh, some weatherized wooden boards on the outside uh, but no insulation really in between um, so uh, you we know, have poor construction in terms of energy e- efficiency and huge potential to to change that um, at the same time a massive drive for electrification. I think that that was fairly evident. Uh, And and also recognition that already... I think 50% plus of homes have something that you might be able to call a heat pump. Yeah. That could be a reversible air conditioner. Um, so yeah, lots of things happening in in, in Australia, um, but linking them all up is, 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 is difficult as it is in, in Europe, you know, we're grappling with the, with similar issues there, of course.
0: And, the, and that's the trick, right? And you've done a little cook's tour of some of the things we've been talking about as we've been talking to governments and, and, and again, at the events over the last couple of, Days it and why we, why we brought you down is because the regulatory assistance project rap is all, all about thinking deeply about the detailed policy mechanisms that allow all of these sort of overlapping systems to work well together. You know, electrification is great, but you know, how does that work with efficiency policy and how, and how do we optimize, you know, the load in, in homes and, and buildings and beyond to, to work with a high penetration renewable energy system? These are all questions that we're actively. Grappling with, and to some degree, it is being driven by solar, by that transformation that we've seen, as you say, the highest per capita um, installation of uh, of solar panels in the world, um, but also, you know, our, our very ambitious renewable energy targets, eighty two percent by by twenty thirty. Um, uh, as I like to say, seven years away. That's that's a big that's a big job, um, but it brings the demand side into focus in a really powerful way. Like, how do we ensure? That uh, heating load, in in particular, but um, you know more broadly across the economy, that we're we're catching that wave of renewables that is coming, and also supporting the stability and affordability of a high penetration renewable energy system. And these are some things that you think deeply about at RAP. Um, you've identified some of the issues and themes. Do you have any reflections on kind of what some of the priorities should be um, for for Australia as we think about, you know, navigating the next few years? Because there's a lot to do, right? And we need to make some choices about what we focus on.
1: There's a lot to do. I mean, we haven't talked about electric vehicles. I understand they're currently only a small share of of sales in in Australia, but there's going to be A lot more electric vehicles coming to market in Australia too. And, you know, they offer great potential for smart charging. So you have a lot of new load that can be used flexibly and absorb some of that solar quite easily. But the other question is, I think, smart electrification of buildings. And I think it's kind of a, um, you need two two things at once. You need to kind of have better insulated buildings Mm. to be able to pre-cool preheat mm. uh, and then you need electrification, you need heat pumps uh, to be installed where they're not installed yet and then together you can you can actually use buildings, grid integrated buildings to be a flexible resource uh, and help with the integration of renewables but you, only, you can only get there if you have you know, a policy, a program of policies that encourage that to happen in an integrated fashion. I think the alternative is to just electrify everything uh, and that would come at higher cost and you have less flexibility of load shifting, which again means higher cost, higher grid costs, and less ability to follow the generation from renewables that Australia is building at breakneck speed, it seems.
0: Yeah. I I like to talk about you know the thermal performance of our, particularly our residential building stock as being one of the most critical grid resources that we have, right, for the very reason that you state. And it's a, it's, it's a, it is to some degree about um, load shifting and, and shaping, but it's also just about you know even if even if we are living in a world where there isn't isn't that much preheating or precooling going on, a good thermal performance in a in a residential building means that when someone does flick on the air conditioner at five six p.m., like the load is going to be lower, which has all of these flow-on effects for the network and, and generation expenditure. The total system cost goes goes down even if we'd never get to the world where it's all just, you know, a flexibility paradise if I can put it that way um, that's still a resource and a really important resource for the grid
1: absolutely and at the same time you lowering people's running costs and you know, we were chatting about low income customers yep. people who are um, you're not able to pay the energy bills, especially in, with the current price spikes that we've seen. Having better thermal efficiency you know, reduces running costs, uh, regardless of which technology you're using, whether you're using a fossil fuel, you use a heat pump, um, resistive feeding, maybe hydrogen. In all cases, you're having better thermal performance allows you to reduce your costs. So I think that's really important. And at the same time, it makes the problem a lot smaller, right? If you if you reduce total energy demand, you need, just need less renewable electricity, renewable energy to be generated in the first place. And yeah, even though we've seen pretty rapid improvements on the supply side, there's still an awful lot of work that needs to happen. We're nowhere near 100% clean power yet. And the more we can do on the demand side, the less we have to do on the supply side. And I think that's still not widely understood. And sometimes people say, oh, we can just overbuild and have a a huge supply-side focused system, I I would be quite careful with that because there there isn't any place in the world I think that has done that, that has actually demonstrated this is a feasible strategy. There's huge resource and land costs involved, um, even in renewables. It's not coming at zero environmental impact. So I think anything we can do on the demand side to make the problem smaller um, has huge benefits that go far beyond just the individual benefits to the occupant of the building.
0: So we've um, we've jumped right into the electrification topic, which is unsurprising given it, it's you and me talking. <laughs> but let's take a step back because uh, it would be... Uh, a- Podcast male Practice to have Jan Rose now on, on the pod and not dive into the, the debate around electrification versus hydrogen, because this is, this is something that you've made a really significant contribution to over the last, last couple of years in terms of actually just looking at the research, particularly as it relates to low temperature heat and the role of an electrification pathway, which leans very heavily on, on heat pumps versus a, a hydrogen through the gas network. Pathway, which is a live debate in Australia as it is in Europe and the u s and other places, um, but I mean when you look at the evidence yarn um, it 's pointing to in a pretty clear direction right
1: yes, it is i mean the reason why I got interested in hydrogen was really because I saw this being proposed by several people as a solution to decarbonizing buildings. And the arguments that were made were as following. One was that if you have hydrogen, you can continue to use a combustion system, a system that can deliver high temperatures so you don't need to renovate extensively and bring down the poor performance of buildings so you can have cost savings there. And the other argument is that it's going to be you know much easier for consumers to be part of the transition because they just get the same service they, you know, they still use a, a boiler but they just get a different fuel delivered to them so it's kind of a painless transition and I was interested in whether those arguments would actually hold when you looked at the independent evidence you know not evidence that was paid for by any vested interest groups and by that, I include heat pump manufacturers, electricity suppliers, gas network companies, uh, boiler manufacturers. Yeah, the whole range, any industry group that funded studies, I did not take those studies into account. And I found 40 independently funded studies that looked at the role of hydrogen in the heating space, and none of them comes to the conclusion that there's a, a, a large-scale role. You know, it is, there are studies that say there's a complementary role, and that's important, I think, to say. Like in some areas, in some places, mm. during certain periods of time, using hydrogen in heating might make sense, but it's it's a small share of overall heat demand. You know, We're talking about somewhere around 1%, maybe, um, and not ninety nine percent yeah which has been proposed by some, so I think the evidence is pretty clear at the same time, we need an awful lot of green hydrogen in my view, um, to replace existing gray hydrogen mm, and black hydrogen mm, so mm. gray being hydrogen from gas from fossil gas with no abatement and black from coal with no abatement and that's an in industry so many it's first feedstock for fertilizer production and potentially also in the electricity sector we don't we haven't seen that being demonstrated yet there's some skepticism about that but I think we're still going to need some form of seasonal storage and green hydrogen could potentially play a role there too.
0: In your presentation that you delivered at the National Energy Efficiency Conference today you put up this graphic from a, a good piece of work um, from Sylvia um which is kind of like really making a, a, a quite a ambitious case for the amount of industrial heating load and the, uh, that uh, can be electrified, particularly at very high temperatures with emerging technologies. I think it's high, right. you're in, in the, the high 90% of plausibly electrified um, in industrial heat. What's your view of, of that work? There's a sort of a consensus that's emerged in Australia that heat pumps are great and electrification is great for low temperature processes, but we're going to need hydrogen for the high temperature processes. Do you think that's where we're heading or do you think that electrification could play a bigger role than we're now contemplating?
1: I think it's probably similar to what we see in the transport space. You know, we we have, uh, I think now broad consensus that, uh, you know, road transport, passenger road transport is going to be electrified primarily, not exclusively, but but primarily and the other question that comes up is um, freight what about freight trucks um, but what we're seeing there is that you know the starting position was that uh, that's surely going to have to use hydrogen or some other fuel but not a battery it's not going to be electric but increasingly we're, we're actually seeing that moving and for um, distribution in cities already there are lots of electric trucks uh, you know, in use today we're now seeing more capacity of batteries you know better technology costs coming down even leading into the potential that previously was seen as this is probably going to be for hydrogen. So I think that's moving quite fast. And I think in the industry space, we're probably going to see something similar. I mean, the potential is, is huge, as this paper that um, I was quoting today shows. I mean, that 80% um, of of uh, industri- industrial energy use could be electrified with existing technology, the paper said, and up to 99% with you know, technologies that's currently emerging and, and could play a role in the future. I'm not saying that's going to be where we end up but the potential is, is very big. So I think we would be surprised uh, to what extent that notion that um, electricity uh, and heat pumps can only do low temperatures and you need hydrogen for high temperatures. I think that's going to change as we move through the transition and technology becomes more widely adopted and better.
0: Which is, a, I guess, a really important point for governments and industry to just maintain a bit of Flexible thinking about where that landing point might be, and keep a very close eye on technology development. It also goes to the innovation challenge, right? Um, and may, and you know, we recently had the IEA Australia Country Review drop for Australia, and and, and the and the, the hardest chapter for me to read was the was the one on our our woeful sort of expenditure um, on R and D, energy R and D specifically. Uh, relative to, you know, uh, competitive countries, other OECD countries, IEA members, and I think this is a massive issue um, because there's a lot, lot of innovation still to come. Some of that should be happening in Australia. We can, of course, partner and do that in a in a way that's complementary to other parts of the world. And we do have this this great opportunity with a, a, a rapidly decarbonising grid to use that use that energy in in really innovative ways and build new industries. But we locking in too early to a particular technology when, you know, hydrogen is emerging and some of these high temperature electrification applications are also emerging, it's just, you know, watching that space very closely, I think, is going to be the best strategy.
1: And yeah, allowing the technologies to be tested, be deployed. Mm. Mm. And in the end, as always, certain technologies will win that race because they're simply, more cost-effective, easier to deploy, um, and I think we need to remain open to an extent. Uh, I think in, in 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 some sectors, I think clarity is needed. Um, yeah, the future of the gas grid, for example, is one of those. Yeah, if you say I'm going to be technologically open to the possibility forever, then you're never planning for that big transition. And I think it's important to send clear signals to make sure that we are. You know, having the right regulation and the right incentives in place so people walk in the right direction. Um, but in other areas where there's more uncertainty, I think keeping all the options out there is important. I think that's a
0: really interesting point because I agree there are areas where the evidence is such and the technology maturity is at a point where clarity is essential and the, the call to... Keep an open mind to see what's coming um, is actually counterproductive and and making it less likely that we're going to achieve what we need to achieve in terms of our climate ch- targets. But then there's other these these other areas where there is genuine uncertainty that requires a, a lot of uh, flexibility of thinking on the part of policymakers and, and on industry to understand those different states. And also, I guess for you, Jan, in your role at the uh, Regulatory Assistance Project being able to advise governments on when that threshold is crossed? No, we, we have enough evidence now. We know what the pathway is. We need to get started. Is that something that you think about?
1: Yeah, we do think about that a lot. And we work a lot with governments who have very ambitious net zero goals. Some of those goals are around the corner. Um, you know, steep decarbonization trajectory already for the mid 2030s. And what we often do is kind of look at what they already have in terms of policies, because, yeah, they're never starting from scratched. You always have incentives built into regulation, whether you want it or not. And they're usually complementary policies that have an impact on the trajectory that you're already on. And what we often then do is kind of look at where they're headed, what do they want to achieve, um, and what is the gap, and how do you bridge that gap? Looking at you know, what are other countries doing that might be further ahead, You know, what innovative examples can we maybe find, and then adapt for the specific context that a country is in. So this is this kind Kind of based on the idea that you need policy innovation um, but you also need that clarity um, and to ensure that you get to the scale, right? Because that's, I think often what I get frustrated with is that we have a lot of talk about targets. You know, politicians love targets because they usually come come in when they're no longer in power, right? A, 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 a target for net zero in 2050. It's, it's great to announce that yeah. but yeah, yeah. what is missing um, is often the plan and the plan backed up by real measures that are then also being implemented. So I think we should spend a lot more time talking about measures and specific policies and less about targets because the target discussion is one that is a distraction, I think, almost in some some places where all of the energy is focused on what should the target be? Is it net zero? Is it zero? Is it 2040, 2050? But actually what matters is what do you do today to accelerate deployment tomorrow?
0: So I, I found that A really interesting perspective. Um, I I thought you might be more uh, pro-understanding a landing point. Does that uh, skepticism of targets also extend to interim targets? For example, um, uh, we have a a process in... In Victoria, where by legislation, um, the government needs to set a five-yearly target on that journey to net zero. And we've recently had a very ambitious target announced, 75 to 80% emissions reduction by 2035. We heard from the New South Wales Energy and Climate Minister, Penny Sharp, this morning. They're putting a similar legislative in target in place for for 2030. Now a legislator target, like uh, a trap door doesn't open up if they don't hit their target. Nothing particularly happens, but it does give it that sort of um, institutional weight, and it gives gives an opportunity for those of us that are um, interested in ambition to ask questions of the government saying, well, Minister, I love that target. Um, where are your policies? To meet it? <laughs> Which- don't,
1: don't get me wrong, Luke. <laughs> I'm not against targets at all. I think they're, they're actually useful. Mm. But I think what I find frustrating sometimes is that – the target discussion dominates yes. and takes up most of the energy. And what is missing is then the specificity around what kinds of things are you actually going to do now, not in 10 years or 15 years, but right now to, to get us on the pathway towards that target. I think that's where my skepticism around a, a kind of target-dominated discussion comes from.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's that's entirely fair. And a target is, it's a number, right? And in public debate, like, is it an ambitious enough number? Or is it too ambitious? Is it not ambitious enough? Like, I think... Somehow, human brains are like arguing about numbers, and it, give, it, it gives it a sense of substance. Which, if unless you have some deep expertise in what the target means, is effectively meaningless. And often, it's you know journalists and politicians having having debates around one target or or another without that necessarily being grounded in what it actually means and what would what would need to take place to to achieve that target. I think that it, it's interesting. You say you raised net zero by by twenty fifty. We had a quite a big debate in Australia, but, but I found that frustrating that we were arguing about what is, you know, the most um, weak tea sort of target of all time, something often 30 years, whereas you say, like, what's something that's much more consequential, as we know from the, the, the science, is what are we doing by 2025, what are we doing by 2030, because that's what's going to determine our ability to actually maintain a safe climate. Right. So yeah, it's interesting as well, though. Well, I think there's, you'd find a lot of advocates and, and experts in Australia that are, that are, that agree with you. I was at a um, energy users association of Australia conference last week. It's conference season here in Australia, it would seem. Um, and we were talking on a, uh, on a panel about Australia's 82% renewable energy target, which is it's not legislated, it's a target that the government has, has set. Um, that's seven years away. It's it's quite a heavy lift. There's a lot of infrastructure to build to hit that. And the consensus on the panel, which was very diver- diverse views across networks and and uh, renewables and I was re- representing the demand side and a and a few other perspectives, was well, yes, fine. Like that gives us a compass bearing, but we've just got to do as much stuff as we can as quickly as we can and get as far as we can and maybe it's eighty two percent or maybe it's seventy or maybe it's ninety like it doesn't like overly fixating on oh, can we build eighty two percent renew eighty two percent it's like it's uh, it's almost surprising there aren't three decimal places after it it's kind of <laughs> so so meaningless in a sense it's interesting um, our energy and climate minister uh Chris Bowen, um, likes likes in his speeches to count down the number of months to twenty fifty. So he's saying it's now eighty-one months or it's eighty months and this is all we have to do. And he's using that idea of a target to give to try and instill a sense of urgency and kind of a sense of the scale of the challenge. So it it can have some rhetorical and galvanizing force as well. Used by politicians that are using it for good rather than obfuscation or delay. Um, so you know, it's like any any tool. I suppose it can be it can be useful or not depending on how it's used.
1: No question about that. I think what some countries do have in place is a very strict monitoring and tracking framework. The Committee on Climate Change in the UK is a, is probably one of the best examples of that, where an independent committee translates what that target actually Mm, means for mm, each sector mm, down to the technology level, down to the numbers. So how many homes do we need to electrify by X? How many electric vehicles do we need? How many... Factories need to be, um, you know, converted, um, to net zero ready technology and, and then monitoring that and reporting back on it on an annual basis and holding the government to account. I think that's useful because it actually holds their feet to the fire and they, they, yeah, they, they actually are getting live feedback. What's happening out there? Are we on track? And if we're not on track, what do we, what can we do to course correct? So I think for that, it's extremely useful. To have a tug,
0: mm. yeah, I think that's right. I'm hopeful that we'll see similar sorts of initiatives. Um, I think we've we've mentioned that the the climate change authority, which has existed for a while in Australia, but just has had a, a refreshed remit um, under the new uh, under the new government. Um, the first run at a at a at a report on the current state of. Um, our uh, climate action um, didn't get down to a sectoral level, but I think there's quite a lot of interest in in doing something similar and actually sort of starting to plot some of those sectoral decarbonisation pathways, which I think are, are incredibly helpful for sort of Disaggregating the task of decarbonization. Cause if you'd stay at a 50,000 foot view, it's just like, oh, someone, someone's going to do something. I'm not, <laughs> not sure exactly who's going to do which bit. Um, and it also, um, it's very hard to have that nuanced conversation we're having at the start of the podcast around, um, which sectors are ready to go? Which can we lean into to create have space for the other sort of technology stories to play out in the heart, in the harder sectors to decarbonize? Um, so sectoral is really useful. And I think it's also useful for inspiring action, particularly from business who are trying to put t- together credible transition plans. Right, and a government guidance on what a credible uh, decarbonising trajectory is for a particular sector or subsector gives you a, a glide path. Right, and you can start to say, "Well, I'm on I'm on track," or "I'm doing slightly worse." Or, I'm actually doing pretty well compared to what the expectations are. And I think it could be incredibly powerful to motivate a whole lot of private sector activity, which government doesn't need to do anything or spend anything. It's just almost a normative role that they're playing in kind of what good practice looks like.
1: Yeah. And providing that clarity, what the long-term trajectory looks like, I think helps a lot. We we haven't talked about regulation much yet, but I think when you take these targets seriously, uh, we have to stop actually installing technologies that will run on fossil fuels from a certain date, unless we want to then decommission them, uh, you become stranded assets. Um, so if you work backwards from the target, that's a pretty useful way of doing it. You know, what's the lifetime, the expected lifetime of the technology? Let's say it's 15 years and not your target is in 2040. Well, you have to stop installing those technologies in a couple of years' time, 2025. So unless you're willing to take out existing equipment that's still working just fine at an additional cost. Uh, So that's how many regulations have been motivated in in Europe and now in other places around the world too, actually saying there is going to be an end date for selling or installing using certain technologies, which is difficult politically, but the industry, once they come around to the idea, will have much more clarity. Um, And they know where to go, uh, and it's still hard and difficult. But the investors know this is a trajectory they're going to be on. They feel confident making that investment. To give you an example, what happens with heat pumps in Europe right now, where we have a number of those bands either announced or implemented, about nine currently in, in, in Europe alone. And we've seen 5 billion uh, euros uh, of investment going forward in Australian dollars. I guess that's about 9 billion Australian dollars or something like that um, of new investment that was partly triggered by government saying, look, this is where we had it. Yeah, this is where we're going. And suddenly companies that traditionally would not be that proactive in the heat pump space felt actually this is an area where we can see a viable business going forward.
0: I know we're pretty deep down the the target rabbit hole, but I have have one more question for you because the, the, the federal government is currently putting together its national energy performance strategy and they're considering the role of energy efficiency targets. And I'm, I'm really interested to know, given the comments that we've been talking about climate and, and emissions reduction targets, but do you see value in specific energy efficiency targets? If, if so, um, is there a form uh, that they can take that is, is more useful or not? I know that. Germany is in the process of legislating some energy efficiency targets. And so this is and, – and I understand it's because they ha- haven't been seeing the rate of improvement in energy efficiency that they were hoping to see. And so they're trying to put a bit more teeth into that side of their decarbonisation trajectory. What What is your view of the energy efficiency targets specifically and their utility?
1: I mean, efficiency targets have been a subject of uh, heated debate in, in Europe – Uh, for a long time. And one view is to say, why do we need any sub-targets? Let's just have a carbon target. We don't need a renewable energy target, which is another area where we have targets in Europe. We don't need an energy efficiency target. My view is that um, that's a little short-sighted because energy efficiency faces a whole lot of barriers where you need specific policies to address those barriers. And they're quite distinct from the barriers that, um, let's say, the power sector faces when it comes to decarbonization. And if we want energy efficiency to happen, it's not going to happen just because you kind of have a level playing field and all options can come to the table. There are lots of non-market barriers market failures, uh, and you need targeted policies. And they may not be financial policies. They may just be information coordination um, instruments that you use to actually overcome those barriers. Um, but unless you have something that focuses policy on that. And it's an energy efficiency target. It's not going to happen and you're foregoing that opportunity. So I think having energy efficiency targets is super important. It's not going to provide the solution, but it's 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 focusing people's minds. Uh, and I, I would I would say for for a foreseeable future we will need energy efficiency targets to do that. Uh, and yes, still have a carbon target. Uh, that's important too. But I think the efficiency target really helps us to focus on setting up political landscape in such a way that you have the right portfolio of instruments.
0: Are there particular examples of efficiency targets you've seen in Europe that have been particularly successful and and
1: impactful? I mean, we had energy efficiency targets uh, for almost 20 years now in Europe. Uh, First, they were indicative um, in the energy efficiency directive. Uh, They were made mandatory. Uh, this, this came in in 2012, uh, so it's, it's more than 10 years ago. Uh, and all the member states have to report on how they're doing. Are they achieving their target? And then there are sub-targets. So there's a sub-target for public buildings. There's a sub-target for primary and final energy. Uh, you know, these targets have uh, led to a much more organized way of tracking what energy efficiency policies are actually doing. And they, I think they have been useful. Uh, and we've seen a lot of uptake of new measures, like we talked about, uh, energy efficiency obligations, white certificates programs yesterday at the conference. And some of those programs in Europe have been adopted as a result of having European energy efficiency targets that need to be implemented by all of the countries in Europe.
0: All right. Well, we're almost out of time, but given where we are in Australia in terms of the policy cycle, which is new government, you know, a new commitment to the demand side, and thinking about its role. Really interestingly, I think in Australia, um, and and with a, a deal of foresight, that process has been focused around not just energy efficiency but energy performance. So, thinking about the integrated role of efficiency, electrification, um, flexibility as well. So, good energy performance right across the economy. Um, advising governments. On how to put good policies of this nature in place is your nerd topic, (laughs) Jan. What are the sort of some of the key principles you'd encourage governments like Australia that are taking on this cast to to keep in mind? Um, and when they're when they're resetting, um, when they're reflecting on what they can do better, well, like what does a good framework look like?
1: So I would say you always consider the potential for demand reduction first. That doesn't mean you do only demand reduction, but in Europe we call it efficiency first. So you look at the potential of the demand side for cost-effective efficiency and you build your programs around that. So that's step number one. And to make this specific, yeah, that may mean yeah, all the buildings that we talked about before that are not insulated well, at least put modest levels of insulation in by whatever date um, you want to insulate them all. But I think that's an important feature. Um, I think secondly, I mean, electrification, we, we talked about that too, is going to play a major role in, in Australia, as in many other places. So I think having a clear trajectory and being clear which sectors the government expects to be electrified, and uh, which sectors um, maybe less so i think that's important and flexibility having incentives um your time of use tariffs uh, are a great instrument to incentivize customers to flex their load to charge their car or run their heat pump when it makes more sense for the grid they save money but it saves also a lot of money for the grid uh, and that's that's a good way to go so i would encourage any government not just the australian government to introduce more incentives that encourage that flexibility by using you know, time dynamic incentives through the electricity prices that people face.
0: Jan, yeah, um, it's great advice. It's it's just been a pleasure being in your presence and, and, and accompanying you to a bunch of meetings and, and getting to nerd out um, over the last uh, four or five days. It's a big commitment um flying to the other side of the, the world but i can tell you you've done it at a really impactful moment and i was just i as you were delivering your presentation i was looking across the audience uh, here at the UNSW roundhouse and just looking at all of the the bright eyes as you were presenting that that material and the um the buzz around the room as i was uh as I was chatting to people, um, post the, your presentation and, and the panel that, that happened afterwards was, was incredible. And so I, I want you to know that, that the trip has been an impactful one and, um, and, and it's deeply appreciated your commitment and your ongoing friendship with the Energy Efficiency Council and, and, and with Australia. Um, and, uh, it's just. Been a delight. We've been talking about this for a long time. You finally made it.
1: <laughs> I finally made it after two failed attempts. And you know, one of the one of the re- reasons for my hesitation is, of course, the, the time commitment and the sure. carbon impact of the of flight. Yes. Um, but in this case, you know, there's 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 new opportunity. Yeah, new government. And a great opportunity to speak to people at this conference at at the right time. So it's been a delight to be here and see a bit of Australia's energy policy (laughs) being designed in real time, Uh, talking to people in government, uh, talking to people who are outside of government industry. Uh, nonprofit sector, and just witnessing the quality of discussion that's taking place, which is, I think, is is actually that is so important. here, that they're high quality conversations about this stuff uh, and trying to solve this. Um, so I'm 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 returning to Europe, being inspired and impressed by what's going on in Australia, uh, and I'm I hope I come back one day.
0: I look forward to that, Jan Rose. Now, thanks for being with us on First
1: Fuel. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, well, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. Thanks to Dr. Rose now for, for being with us. If you have comments, you can find him on social media. He's on LinkedIn and on the website formerly known as Twitter. Um, and to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management, demand response, you can find the Energy Efficiency Council at org. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel and your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, visit ec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon.